three, two, one. Hi, Diwa. Hey, Sinduja. How are you? I'm very well. I'm excited to do another episode of Uncomplicated with you. This interview was amazing. It was it was one of the most interesting conversations I've had in my life, hands down. Likewise. And we spoke with Joseph Kanatachi, who is the special rapporteur on privacy for the United Nations. We have a resolution which links privacy to the right to free development of personality. So every child is a personality being developed. It should be developed freely. And that development is protected by a cloud, by a bubble of privacy, which should accompany the child everywhere. So up top, I just want all the listeners to know, and you, Sinduja, I give full consent for you all to listen to this conversation. Thank you very much. I will take your information and use it wisely. Thank you. Uh, It was a conversation that um, I think I'm going to be thinking about for not just a few days, but for weeks and months to come. Well, it'll be a major topic of discussion throughout our lifetime (laughs) in the entire world. Yeah, we're just getting started, right? And I think some of the major issues that are coming to the forefront, we're not even aware of. And this is what this this conversation helped us start to think about. People hate being manipulated if they know that they're being manipulated. So um, this is something which we need to work on. In other words, to educate all levels of citizenry, not only kids, but all levels of citizenry of how data and their data online can be manipulated, not only to manipulate their commercial decision making, what they buy in the stores and online, but also who they vote for. It's because this issue is in, uh, if not its infant stages, at most adolescent, right? right? In the last two years, 90% of existing internet data has been created. That's insane. (laughs) Correct, right? Uh, I mean, there is a trail to every digital action you make, you know? And when I think about... You know, if you talked about privacy 30 years ago, this came up in the interview, but I would think of like banking and medical data. And now it's almost all personal digital information, right? Uh, I would view banking as sort of the horse and buggy, whereas personal data is like the the electric or the self-driving car. Oh, I like that. Yeah, right? Because like when you think of that, it's like there are no rules to the roadways for those cars yet, which is why you don't see a ton of them on the road. Well, we don't even know how they're going to stay in the lane. And, and that is being figured out, but slowly, right? Right. That regulation is is just starting to come about in terms of... And being discussed, whereas with personal data... I think we blew past that moment and we're sort of trying to retrofit it. Absolutely. Because everyone has personal data out there on the internet. That they don't even realize that they're putting out there. And a cell phone that they're carrying around. It's it's just we've gone past that moment and we're trying to figure out how we deal with this. Let's take a step back. Okay. And talk about what the special rapporteur role is. Great idea. So just to give a little bit of background... The United Nations has a human rights council. Since 1980, when issues have come up that seem to be hugely important, but there's not enough information out there or there's not there's not an, a vested interest, at least by the UN, um, in terms of expertise, what the Human Rights Council does is essentially mandate and kind of put out a resolution, put out a document that says we want, we are going to appoint an expert to consider this issue to be our voice, in some sense, to be our conscience. It sounds like it's a solid move of asking the experts for help. Exactly. 
And so these are people who have been studying human rights issues or, or aspects of human rights for decades. And what we're going to hear from from Joseph Kanatachi is the fact that, like you said, you know, this conversation is, is happening um, and it's maybe at its adolescence, but he was there when the baby was born. He's been studying privacy for decades. Joe is the head of the Department of Information Policy and Governance at the Faculty of Media and Knowledge Sciences at the University of Malta. He's been a pioneer in the development of technology law and privacy law and has written several books and articles on this subject. And you can tell in the interview because he does not miss a beat. No, not ever. And the one thing I do want to point out is that these are truly independent experts. So not only are they super well-versed in their field, but they have the complete independence to undertake evaluations, assessments when they're invited to countries to support regulation, to help governments figure out what policies should be. And they don't get a salary. They do this entirely of their own accord, of their own volition, and they're taking on this responsibility of, like I said, to be the conscience of the United Nations, and, and it's something really special. And so I think we should let our audience hear this conversation and not have us not ramble any further. You have a deal. <laughs> um, so here we go. We're going to listen to Professor Joseph Kanatachi and um, his views on privacy and what that means for where we are in today's world and, and where we're going. I think that uh, when it comes to informational privacy these days, it's very much uh, about the extent to which an individual mm. can control the flow of information about himself or herself. And basically deciding who to tell and, not, and who not to tell, who to show, who not to show. It's also become increasingly important because of the fact that people are using information about other people for both commercial and political decision-making. Let's go back a second to to the role of the privacy special rapporteur itself. This role was mandated for the first time in 2015. What made the UN decide that this was the time for a privacy SR? And what's the risk if we at the UN don't do this work? Well, I think there's no hiding the fact that um, the my mandate, a special rapporteur on the right to privacy, was born out of the Snowden revelations. When... Edward Snowden from the United States uh, in June of 2013 began revealing a lot of information about the role of intelligence services, and especially those of the U.S. intelligence services and the U.K. intelligence services, and how they were uh, capable, basically, of carrying out surveillance on a whole number of people, wherever they are across the world, whatever they're doing. That brought this uh, to the fore. I think it was also helped by the fact by, that the leaders of at least two states, Angela Merkel uh, from uh, Germany and the president of Brazil, were both targeted by um, spying by the two agencies or several agencies concerned. And that led to a resolution in the UN uh, to create the post of special rapporteur. However, um, my brief, my mandate is not restricted to surveillance. Right. It covers all kinds of privacy. And at this moment in time, in fact, we're working on 
privacy in children, privacy in gender. We've worked on, and I've produced a report on big data and open data. And these days I'm in New York precisely to launch my new set of guidelines on health data. Healthcare is, for example, less of an issue in places like Europe, where most countries uh, afford you what amounts to free healthcare, the point of service. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the United States, healthcare is such an issue because of the business model which is used, results uh, in people sometimes selling their house in order to have healthcare, which is almost unheard of in, in Europe, for example. If you're in a country which has suffered from 50 years of communist dictatorship, their concerns are going to be quite different from those in a country which hasn't been invaded since 1066, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you're going to go uh, to a country where water is scarce, right, um, then uh, prioritization in an emerging economy, uh, what is often called the global south, is quite different. But that doesn't mean that they don't care about privacy. They just care about it in a different way. The mandate of your role is to to promote these exchange of, of best practices between countries. So, you know, how does that how does that work? One, when privacy is so expansive, as and and as we've been saying, people are concerned have different issues in different countries. So some people might be most concerned with the Google or Amazon tracking them versus, as just as you said, um, the other people may be much more concerned with their own government tracking them. And Correct. so, what does that imply for lessons learned across countries? And how do you how do you support those recommendations and develop that policy? Okay, so once again, it depends on the subject, sure. right? Sorting out health data uh, is different to sorting out surveillance data in a country where um, surveillance is very strong. If you're going to look at um, how uh, citizens in countries where uh, it's an emerging economy or where poverty has suddenly shot up, Mm -hmm. their concerns are going to be less about giving their consent to their data rather than expecting that there's a law which protects them. Mm. To answer one of the questions that you've asked, um, what would be the two most common comments made by citizens in focus groups that we run, the most common comments would be in reaction to, for example, learning how governments or corporations use data about them. The first comment would be, isn't there a law about that? Or the second one would be, there should be a law about that. So the citizens firstly expect that somebody has thought the problem through Mm. and put in a law to protect them. And that, I can say, runs common across most countries, whether you're looking at a first world country or an emerging economy or a third world country. I think that's pretty common. The citizens are expecting the lawmakers to take uh, proper measures. Then it obviously very much depends on what on what and how they relate the technology to their daily life. So I think that um, you you can't avoid the fact that a lot of discussions about privacy rightly take place around a particular technology. So in answer to one question, have I been in a, in a, in a clearing in the forests in sub-Saharan Africa with 200 hunter-gatherers and the discussion suddenly turned to, is the government requesting me that I register my name for a 
phone SIM card, an infringement of my privacy? Yes, I had to shut up for half an hour, let them sort it out between themselves, and then take it, take it back to where I wanted to go. So um, have I seen places in, in the jungles in Borneo or other places where they didn't have a word for privacy, privacy. in their language, but they had a lot of privacy-related uh, concepts and behavior. So uh, this is this is why when you talk about privacy, you can't divorce it from the local context, mm. from the local traditions, from the local culture, but also um, from the local climate, from the local uh, and the local take up of technology. I was thinking about this in terms of a lot of indigenous communities have have, like you said, no word for privacy or they are much more open with kind of communal information or community information because it stays within their group. As soon as there becomes contact contact rather with the other, in this case the government, then then privacy becomes takes on a much more different meaning and potentially um, a little bit more insidious. And so how how what is a conversation like that look okay, like? Okay, so th- so first of all, let's let's try to make a distinction between individual privacy mm. and community or communal privacy. Um, you're perfectly correct that <clears throat> one of the things which I suspect was not at the forefront of the people who were authoring the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, but which certainly has emerged during the past several decades and certainly during my time as special rapporteur, is the fact that there is such a thing as community privacy, mm-hmm. that that's especially reflected in some regions of the world, that in especially in an indigenous setting, um, and indigenous data rights is something very close to my heart, has been for many years, long before I became special rapporteur, um, you would notice that where people think that there's no privacy, and I think you know a clear example is that of the Australian Aboriginals, mm-hmm. where people used to say, ah, but I can look right through the camp, but that doesn't matter. Um, there are so many issues, so many rules about how you deal with privacy about the community, information about the community, what you give outside the community, what you allow inside, what you tell your mother-in-law, what you don't tell your mother-in-law. What, there, are, uh, there are so many uh, rules which have been discovered and some which are yet to be discovered that you would immediately see that in that context and in similar ones, privacy is very much alive and healthy. Um, it, there's also the fact that when people realize that they could be manipulated mm-hmm. by information um, given about them, then there is, uh, there is also a tendency to fight against mm-hmm. that. So I think you, we need to understand more the concerns in a given context mm-hmm. before one can come up with a solution for tackling privacy in that context. Um, it's interesting to see, I mean, something which I think is universal at this moment in time, wherever I go, um, is the reaction to um, problems of privacy and sexuality. Mm. So um, whether I am in Argentina or in Korea or in the United States clearly this week, um, is revenge porn important? Is grooming online important? Mm. So the technology... Uh, has brought along something which, you know, just 20, 30 years ago, when, uh, 35 years ago when I started my career, was not possible. 35 years ago, we didn't even have mobile phones. Um, they, 
and when they came in, they didn't allow you to access the internet, which didn't exist, and you couldn't take pictures or videos. But today, um, people fi have found out to their grave remorse, and this is something which is, I find, has a strong gender element to it. You were mentioning gender first, but um, while, yes, I've come across a number of cases where you had uh, males suffering from revenge porn. Nothing can disguise the fact that at least 70-80% of what we see is uh, more female-related and um, the problem remains the same. Mm. Whether I'm in Australia, um, Korea, other places in Asia, Europe, the United States, South America, people are being hurt, people are having their privacy. When they have their private images spread around, uh, their reputation is hurt. They often have, lose the ability to go to work. Um, their dignity is shattered. And so we have a new problem which has been introduced by the ubiquity of the technology and which we have to face up to and which we have to come up with standards with. For I them. see this as, as maybe the largest uh, or one of the largest societal issues we would have globally because the entire world is in essence on film and I can't think of anyone on the planet who would like to be judged by their five worst moments. More times than not, those moments very well may be recorded, right? And that's a, a interesting new problem that didn't exist 30 years ago. That's correct. And, and just look what didn't exist five years ago, right? Uh, which is um, five years ago, many apps were messaging apps were not necessarily encrypted. Today they are, and the companies make a, rightly make a big deal out of the fact that they're encrypted. But today you have many apps uh, which um, self-destruct the message. Why? Because most messages are ephemeral, and especially in those places where if you've applied for a job or if you've applied for a university or college place um, and the admissions tutor or the job recruiter goes out online and looks and looks at the um, at what's out on social media as you were correctly saying do you really want to be judged for the job by that one moment in your life or the second moment or very rare moment when you had let your hair down and had been drinking or partying or whatever else you did in a private moment no let alone how even worse it is when you thought you were with somebody you loved you mm -hmm. trusted that person with images which are intimate which are very private and then that person turns out capable to exploiting those uh, in in a situation which is very hurtful so the technology carries with it the risk that many images which before would not have been created let alone recorded and disseminated. I mean, that's yet another impact of the technology. Before, you would have had to have um, access to newspapers and the media in order to broadcast an image. Today, you've taken it and you've posted it online and it goes viral within seconds. Mm -hmm. Some politicians don't like that, and rightly so, but more than politicians, my, my heart goes out to people who... Uh, are ordinary citizens every other day of the week, and then they suddenly find that 
their data has been taken and manipulated. And they could be hurt in so many ways. It could be their medical data, but it also very often could be in cases like the ones I've just mentioned, so-called reverse uh, revenge porn. But we're seeing other cases of, like, for example, children. And how do you protect the privacy of children? Who decides that, right? Because as a parent, in in theory, you you have jurisdiction or, or kind of have a right to that. But a lot of parents are putting their own children's photos online and um, sometimes monetizing their children as well via Instagram accounts. Like, what does, where does that line between good parenting in some sense and exploitation fall? Well, I, I share your concern. Um, I wish I had more answers on this moment in time. But that's the subject of the research we're carrying out Mm -hmm. over the next 12 to 18 months. And I'm hoping to make a report about that to the United Nations Human Rights Council in March of 2021. So I'd ask you to be a bit patient for those answers. (laughs) But I, I I, I would simply say that your concerns are very real ones, right? Just consider two or three things, although we may not have the final answers. I consider privacy of children to be a very complex subject, even more than surveillance, even more than secret services, even more than the police, because the the factor that you've mentioned, parents, is the biggest complicating factor. Because on the one hand, we have children, and it's 30 years almost to the day that we've decided in the United Nations Conventions of Right to the Child to give children more of a say in the way they're brought up, right? And I was delighted that two years ago in 2017 in the Human Rights Council, we have a resolution which links privacy to the right to free development of personality. So every child is a personality being developed. It should be developed freely. And that development is protected by a cloud, by a bubble of privacy, which should accompany the child everywhere. That being said, parents come in all shapes and sizes. Some are very liberal and some are worse than Victorian. And the extent to which they want to boss their kids around and rule their lives has been the subject of much literature and has helped Hollywood make lots of money too. Uh, But in the meantime, let's look at some of the facts. And some of the facts are, um, you tell me how many parents out there have been unfriended by their kids uh, on things as passe, <laughs> as some kids would say, uh, as Facebook or other social media, right? Look at the extent to which that kids immediately start using social media and other spaces to create, if not an adult-free environment, certainly a, parent, a parent-free environment, mm. right? So it's clear yes. that kids want to have some privacy from their parents, and it's clear that some parents, rightly, want to control their kids' access to the Internet, both in terms of time spent and in terms of content. So it's going to be a long and interesting discussion, yeah. and I hope to have uh, more information for you in for future editions of Uncomplicated. Well, we look forward so, to, to hearing that. I have an assumption. I'd like to see if you possibly agree. So I feel like the next generation or any kid who has grown up now with this type of access to uh, basically with cell phones, I think is a good way to summarize it. They will be more concerned than prior generations. They will be more concerned with privacy as a whole and possibly understand it better. My only frame of reference being, well, it's kind of a silly example, but my mother, for example, behaves online in a way that might make you think she's an aggressive, sometimes rude person. And I find her to be very sweet. 
but I think people behave differently online. And the older you are, if you're an existing adopter versus an organic adopter who has grown up with it, I think the behavior patterns are completely different. And I suspect the current generation will be much more sensitive about the way they behave online, possibly. Do you think that's where it's going? Well, let me firstly say that I do hope that your mother is listening so that she she would say <laughs> how how uh, you know what what a sweet kid I I brought up, right? Um <laughs> secondly, I would agree with you subject to a couple of conditions. From a policy development point of view, there are going to be more and more governments around the world who hopefully aided by wisdom coming from the United Nations, but even if nothing does come from the United Nations, they will say, we need to have a policy which has our kids being taught how to behave as good online citizens even before they start on sex education. Mm -hmm. Now, I have been in countries where sex education is starting at the age of seven or eight. Mm -hmm. So what we're looking at is um, online digital citizenry being taught from the age of four or five as part of a structured uh, way of inducing risk awareness in kids. So kids are smart, which is why you're going to be hard-pressed to fool them all the time but the minute that they realize that they start punching words into a search engine, whether it's Pokemon or Cindy or whatever is, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the in thing of the moment, they are going to start being bombarded with ads for Pokemon or Cindy. Mm. You're going to have to explain to them how cookies work. And once they understand how cookies work and they'll understand that faster than their parents, then they will probably devise ways of either uh, sidestepping them or learning how to control cookies on their browser. Mm. Now, this is something which I think we'll see evolve gradually. So as the technologies evolve, um, citizens' and children's um, awareness evolves and countermeasures are adopted. Now, um, some countries where the internet is monitored all the time, um, you will see that research suggests that citizens on change their vocabulary right. online every 27 minutes or every 26 minutes or whatever it is because of the fact that they are aware that they're being under surveillance and they're taking countermeasures by changing the way they refer to some abuse or to some politician or whatever it is. And kids, I think, will develop... Um, as adults, their own ways of survival in this world, which means that we're in for a very interesting five to 20 years coming up on how we devise policies which are clear, which give legal certainty, which help people move along in a direction which says, no, this should not be permissible by law. This kind of genetic data should not be exploited this way. If you want to use medical data, you need this kind of, you need this kind of, um, of safeguards. And I think one of the things that we're going to find out is we have to be honest with ourselves and say so much of this is work in progress, mm -hmm. right? Unfortunately or fortunately, we're not living in a world where somebody sat down and said, and this is the grand plan. In 20 years, we shall have the internet. In 25 years, we shall be able to buy something over Amazon. In 30 years, we're going to all enjoy Netflix. That didn't happen that way, right? There wasn't a, a policy discussion about all of this. It happened because the technology made, made it possible and because entrepreneurs um, had the 
the sagacity to go in and make a buck while they could, mm. with sometimes very clearly in a policy vacuum, right? Now, if we're going to get out of that policy vacuum and strike to make good policy, because that's the next challenge, how to make good and relevant policy which can last for some years rather than being overtaken by the next technology, that's going to be key in us making sure that tomorrow's world is something that we can be proud that we left our kids enjoy. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, how do we design policy that's flexible given that technology is changing so quickly, right? And so from, as you said, 10 years ago, we didn't we didn't think Snapchat would exist, uh, and it does. And, and 20 years ago, we didn't certainly didn't think that Facebook was would exist, and, and it does. And so what is the best way to support governments in being responsive and being proactive and flexible? Well, I, I think that this takes us back to um, your question is probably as old as the hills in that, I, you know, the Greek philosophers as well as Rousseau were asking questions about when are we going to have educated citizenry, mm. right? Now, I dare say that if uh, our citizens were more educated than some people around the world would not be holding public office. Um, <laughs> because um, if they were to realize... Now, you asked me what I meet around the world. Now, what I meet around the world is a huge reluctance uh, um, amongst most people of whatever level of education of being taken, uh, being led up the garden path, being taken for a dance, right? Uh, because... They hate being manipulated. Mm. So one of the things that we have to show and explain and make uncomplicated to mm. people is how elections can be manipulated by people who count how many votes it's going to take to take this seat in this electoral college and then target people um, and just show them what they want to know. Right. And this is the key risk in the flow of information in society and why privacy is important. Because clearly, if a voter loves gardening and hates cigarettes, then that voter is going to be targeted with ads which tell him how this politician is going to make gardening fertilizers and seeds cheaper and how everywhere is going to be an anti-smoking place. Mm -hmm. But if that person's neighbor loves tobacco, then the political message that will reach that person is going to be majoring on how taxes on tobacco are going to go down. Mm -hmm. And that is something that people really hate. They, uh, people hate being manipulated if they know that they're being manipulated. Yeah. So um, this is something which we need to work on. In other words, to educate all levels of citizenry, not only kids, but all levels of citizenry, of how um, data and their data online can be manipulated, not only to manipulate their commercial decision-making, right. what they buy in the stores and online, but also who they vote for. And that is something else which we need to see, because it's by poking into people's privacy and finding out what their most intimate sometimes of preferences are, whether they love fishing, gardening, hunting, uh, or reading, that they can be targeted with carefully crafted message mm. about options and 
unfortunately, it's the lack of completeness in the information which then uh, results in people making decisions which they later regret. Yeah. It sounds like uh, you view this almost as a life skill, the way that my generation was taught sort of, you know, the way sex education programs came about or even just a typing class, a skill you can use your whole life. You view the knowledge of how your data can possibly be used and the flow of that data as a very important life skill for the future generations. Yeah, the only thing I'd, I'd change there is when you said almost. It's not almost a life skill. It's an essential life mm. skill. If you want to live life as the founding fathers in the United States meant it from a democratic point of view, life, liberty, and the pursuit mm -hmm. of happiness. And what I'm saying quite clearly and in full conviction is that if your data is out there, then you might get to hang on to your life because you're paying taxes and helping commerce along. But in so far as liberty and the pursuit of your own happiness, um, you are going to be so manipulated by so many people in so many ways that life might not be worth living. Do you think we could ever get it back? You know, is it like Pandora's box? You know, the cat can never go back in the bag once we've let oh, yes. go. Oh, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm confident we can get it back. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but in order to be get, get it back, we've got to be honest about what we had, mm. about what we have and what's at risk. And we've got to be honest about what it will take to get it back. Do I have it correct that uh, you, you are doing this um, technically unaffiliated and you are not paid for this work? Is yes. that correct? Just yes, yes, you have it correct that I am doing this uh, uh, as an independent expert. I am not paid and I guess... After four years of doing this, I would be several thousand, uh, no, I should change that, tens of thousands of dollars out of pocket. Uh, but happily, you know, um, it's something which I do quite happily for the simple reason that it's worth doing. It's It's got to be done. And I'm pleased to see many, many other citizens out there for various causes who do it because it's the right thing to do. Well, we're very grateful. Well, from, yes, thank you from Sinduja, myself, and my lovely mother, who hopefully someday you can meet. <laughs> I'd uh, love to meet her. I'd great. love to meet her. And we're going to have a nice chat about all the data she's putting out. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good to me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hey, before we go, a huge thank you to the over 150,000 people who listened to our first episode of Uncomplicated. We're really grateful. Absolutely. Keep following. Heart, like, share us. Also, a big thanks to Signal and Report, the music that you hear at the beginning and end. And Sinduja, I want to make sure we have the rights to play their music. Absolutely, we do. Uh, we are so excited to continue hearing from you. So please, please, please send us your episode suggestions. You can tweet us at UN News with the hashtag uncomplicated. And thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Ciao. Yep. yep. Goodbye. To holding all the pain she feels outside.